raising of Lazarus is the seventh climactic final sign in John's gospel. Uh, you may remember from our previous studies that to the ancient Jew, the number seven was the number of perfection or completion. And thus, in John's gospel, we have seven I am sayings of Jesus, seven sermons that Jesus preached, and seven signs. And herein is the climactic sign, the greatest sign, and is a sign that propels us inexorably toward the cross, towards that final climactic moment in Jesus' ministry when he would lay down his life for sinners. Now we have pointed out again and again in our study how John deliberately calls these miracles signs. Signs, by their nature, point to something else. There's always something greater in view. Jesus has turned water into wine. He has healed the sick. He has fed the hungry. He has walked on water. And all of these things have the purpose of pointing us to Jesus, who he is, and what he does for us. But this seventh sign most clearly and deliberately points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. In it, one writer says, we have a foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection. You may have noticed the similar language that appears that appears in the in the burial and resurrection of Jesus. We read of a cave and a stone being over. We read of uh, Lazarus being wrapped in linen strips. What we find here in chapter 11 is Jesus confronting what the Bible calls the last great enemy. This chapter provides for us a very moving, a very personal insight into Jesus' dealings with that fear that we are told holds every human being captive. The fear of death. And in one incident in a single family, Jesus is pointing to what he will do in order to deal with sin and death once for all at the cross. In this sign, we have that preview, a living prophecy of Jesus' death and resurrection. A preview of what he will accomplish for his people. I think that in John 11, we, we get a living picture, a living example of what we read of in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Chapter 11 gives us a picture of our high priest in action. 
He gives us a foretaste of the destruction of that last great enemy by his own death. While at the same time, ministering to us that we might overcome our fear of death in the present. And so let's begin by thinking about weak faith and fear exposed. Weak faith and fear exposed. The the first part of this chapter, we see the weak faith of the disciples and the weak faith of Mary and Martha, and even the onlookers in the crowd, we see it exposed and highlighted. And again, this is a running theme in John's gospel, especially when it comes to the signs. You see, Jesus always must expose our weak faith before he can strengthen us, before he can minister to us. And this weakness of faith is seen most pointedly by the fear of death that permeates the early part of this chapter. It is very clear that the fear of death grips the hearts of these people, that they are keenly aware that death is a fierce enemy. In verse 8, when Jesus says to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. The disciples say, and you can sense the fear, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? They were afraid for Jesus' life and for their own lives. And when Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus is dead and that they must go to him, Thomas says, let us go also that we might die with him. There's no doubt a sense of loyalty there, but us men can hear the sense of male bravado masking the fear of death. We see this weak faith and fear of death in Mary and Martha as well. When Jesus gets close to Bethany, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This illustrates their weak faith. You notice the dynamic here. They they trusted that Jesus could heal Lazarus. There was a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, but their faith is limited. It is weak. Now they're saying, Lord, it's too late. He's been conquered by the last great enemy. They believed that Jesus could heal their brother, but not that he could raise him from the dead. And even the onlookers in the grave say the same thing that Mary and Martha did. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Weak faith and a fear of death. And this is intended to be a picture of us as well. Our faith is weak. It is so often pathetic. We trust Jesus to an extent, but in our minds there are things that are just 
too great for Jesus to overcome. And like the disciples and these two women, how often we can fear the prospect of death. And we fear it precisely because our faith is weak. The last great enemy seems so daunting, so final, that it's hard for us to believe that Jesus has indeed overcome it. And what Jesus has done and what he does in our lives is very often he arranges his providences, sometimes hard providences for us, to expose our weak faith in order that he might strengthen it and minister to us and show us how great he is. So that leads us, secondly, to think about Jesus' gracious ministry. Because what we see here is that Jesus graciously ministers to those whom he loves. And again, this is not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago to one family. This same Jesus ministers to us. He ministers to us in our weak faith because he loves us. And what a comfort it should be to us that we have a high priest who is now enthroned in heaven, who is ministering to us in the same way. But he often ministers to us in unexpected ways, not in the ways that that we would think. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you catch that? It was because Jesus loved these people that he delayed and let his friend die. Jesus allowed Lazarus, his friend, to die. And this is often how Jesus ministers to us. Unless Jesus comes again, Jesus is going to allow our friends to die. He is going to delay and allow us to remain in some kind of trial much longer than we would like. And yet here we are assured that his purpose in this is to strengthen our faith. Now there was another reason that Jesus delayed. He delayed that he might bring this family to what? from a human perspective, was a completely hopeless situation. To to bring these women to a state of complete helplessness, there was nothing they could do at this point. And that's a running theme in the signs. 
All of the signs underline the, the hopelessness and the helplessness of the situation. But when we look at those other signs, you think, for example, of that couple in John 2 that ran out of wine. There's a little bit of hope there. Like maybe someone would come up with some wine. In John 5, the, the man that was paralyzed for 38 years, maybe he could get down to that pool and, and be healed. There, there was some hope there. But now here in this climactic sign, it is underlined that these women were helpless. They could do nothing. He was dead four days by the time that Jesus arrived. You see, this illustrates our great need for Christ. We are helpless. We are hopeless without him. There's nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation. Jesus must act. And we sense the, the pain and, and the helplessness. When Jesus arrives, Martha almost rebukes Jesus. If he would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And I want you to notice Jesus' gracious ministry to Martha. And it's the same gracious ministry he has for us in our weak faith today. Martha says, if you had been here, he would not have died. But then in verse 22, she says, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice there the perfect picture of our struggle of faith. This woman believes in Jesus. Her statements almost contradict themselves, like, Lord, it's too late, but, but I know that you can do something. That's the same struggle we deal with every day. Our cry should be the cry of that man when he said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what Jesus does for her. He helps her in her unbelief. Listen to his ministry to her in verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, the psychology of this, I think, is, is fascinating because I think she's doing what we so often do. She was saying what she thought she should say. She was spouting off correct doctrine. This is good, sound doctrine. She knew her catechism. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew her doctrine. She knew her catechism. But it's offering her no comfort. It's offering her no help. And the question is why? Now, I want to underline that confessions of faith, creeds, catechisms, 
These are absolutely necessary for the life of the church. We need to understand and articulate what the Bible teaches, and I think we rightly criticize churches who don't have creeds and confessions. Because it brings us to a point where Christianity is some undefined, ambiguous religion that can mean anything we want it to mean. For the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth, we must have creeds and confessions, and we must know them. But while we point out the error of not having creeds and confessions, I, I think it it alerts us to another error that maybe hits a bit closer to home for us. And that is, we can have our creeds, we can have our confessions, but if our faith rests in mere knowledge of those creeds and confessions, then in moments like these, moments of crisis, they will fail us. Friends, while creeds and confessions and catechisms are necessary, they will be of no help to us if we lose sight of the object of our confession. Our faith has an object. The word creed, many of you know this, means I believe. Our faith has an object. We confess faith in someone. And this is what Jesus does for Martha and what he does for us. Listen to what he does in verse 25 and following. She says in sort of a general way, I know my brother will rise again in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What's he doing here? He's taking her from faith in a confession from some abstract doctrinal statement, which was failing her, to faith in a person. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And you'll notice how this strengthens her faith. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And friends, what's remarkable here is that Jesus has not yet raised Lazarus, Mary and Martha had no idea that Jesus was going to raise their brother, and yet he's already strengthening their faith. And he did that by leading her to himself. And that's what he so often does for us in our trials, in our sorrow, in our grief. He says, look at me, remember me. Jesus graciously ministers to us and helps us in our faith that is so weak. 
And in doing so, he strengthens us. He helps us to overcome fear. Again, we see Jesus doing here what the writer to the Hebrews spoke of. When he said of Christ that he took on flesh and he died and he suffered to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. His gracious ministry to us. And thirdly and finally, related to that gracious ministry to us is Jesus' compassion. His compassion. This chapter presents the humanity of Jesus in great depth. We're shown a deeply emotional and compassionate Jesus. A a Jesus who is moved to compassion by the suffering and the sorrow and the tears of his people. Friends, the tender love of Jesus and the real relationship that he is in with us is highlighted throughout the chapter. In verse 3, we read, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And it wasn't just that they claimed that Jesus loved them. John tells us in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When the Jews saw the outpouring of emotion in verse 36, they said, see how he loved him. Friends, your Savior deeply loves you. Your relationship with him is not some cold, abstract bond. It is very personal. It is very intimate. He cares deeply for you and he sympathizes with you. Again, we have a beautiful picture here, a beautiful portrait of Jesus, our high priest. A living example of what the book of Hebrews teaches, that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and our pain and our tears. Notice the outpouring of sympathy and emotion. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and his spirit and greatly troubled. Friends, do you believe that Jesus is not coldly removed from your suffering? Do you believe that he feels for you? Friends, we need to remember this because what happens when when we are involved in a trial, when we are experiencing sorrow and grief, we just feel alone. That there's no one that really understands what we are going through and how often we can feel alone. And here we are reminded that that is not true. Your Savior is with you. He understands. He sympathizes. He feels for you. 
It comes through here so vividly when Jesus comes to the tomb and he he sees this tomb that held his dead friend and he weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And yet it is very, very significant. The word used for Jesus weeping here is different than all the other words used for weeping in this chapter. It's different than the the Jews weeping and Mary's weeping. It meant to sob quietly. You see, what's being underlined for us here is that Jesus weeping was different. It was a holy weeping. It was weeping not impacted by personal sin. Listen to what William Hendrickson said of Jesus weeping. It must be stressed that these tears of our Lord were unaccompanied by sin. They were not the tears of the professional mourner, nor those of the sentimentalist, but those of the pure and holy, sympathizing high priest. They proceed from the most genuine love for man found in the entire universe, the love which gave itself in order that every tear may be wiped away from our eyes. It is the great love and sympathy of Jesus that leads him to this holy weeping. Friends, is this the Jesus you believe in today? The sympathetic high priest. Are you able to picture Jesus Christ saying to his father, saying to the spirit about you, our our friend Our friend is ill. Our friend is hurting. Our friend is caught in sin. Let's go to him. Friends, we have a Savior who deeply loves us and is intimately involved in our suffering and our trials. But this display of emotion has another related side to it, and it may surprise us. We see Jesus' tender love, but that tender love necessitates something else. Because we also see the hatred of Jesus. In verses 33 and 38, we're told that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. He was deeply moved, and and the Greek word is much stronger than our English translations suggest. The word means to be moved to anger. It meant to be agitated and enraged. Jesus was deeply angry. And we need to ask, why was he angry? Why was our loving Savior enraged 
in his spirit. It's because he saw what sin and death had done to one he loved so dearly. Because he saw what sin and death had done to this world, the sorrow, the heartache that it brought, and he was angry. And he no doubt foresaw his own death and the sin that he would bear and the estrangement from his father that he would experience. Friends, do you have a Jesus who hates? You have a Jesus who is angry because this is the true Jesus. I think as, as parents, we, we can understand this, that perfect love demands that Jesus hate anything that would harm those who are his. Jesus hates sin. He hates our sin precisely because he loves us. He is angry at what sin has done to us. Friends, we need a Jesus who rages against sin and death with a holy hatred. Friends, Jesus was not a victim as he went to the cross. We need to see him as a fierce warrior who went to the cross deliberately, raging against sin and death for us. He hates sin because it harms us. And what a lesson that is for us in hating our own sin. To follow the lead of Jesus and to hate our sin and seek to kill it that it might not kill us. And this is Jesus' great tender ministry to you today. And what we'll think about more in the second service is how the end of the chapter makes the connection that it is at the cost of his own death, that Jesus frees us both from death itself and the fear of death. Because what is made clear at the end of the chapter is that by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus brought about his own death for us. Something that he knew and understood and yet willingly did. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. That even though one day we die, yet shall we live. Lord, we know that our faith is weak and it is pathetic. And how we thank you that you are a sympathetic high priest who ministers to us, who seeks to expose our weak faith, expose our fears in order that we might be brought to a greater trust in our beloved Savior. Lord, strengthen our faith today.
For those enduring trial, Lord, comfort them in the fact that you are ministering to them, even as you delay relieving them. You are ministering to them and teaching them of your glory and your greatness. Lord, we ask these things in the good name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.